listening to the Higher Ideas Podcast, where ideas grow. Connect on Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, or higherideas.net. Now here's your host, I. Hello, fellow human, and welcome back to the Higher Ideas Podcast. It's Open Heart Sunday again, which means I get to speak to you about anything I want from the heart, instead of worrying about limiting myself to a specific concept or uh, very cerebrally dissecting an idea, this segment is all about just speaking, just communicating to you. But that being said, I am a little bit restricted today because I need to finish what I started last Open Heart Sunday. Um, last time on episode 45, I told you the first half of a story about my second time going to ayahuasca in the jungles of Peru. This is what I call Ayahuasca Year 2. And last time around, I described the first week of this two-week experience. So if you haven't heard uh, that story, I do encourage you to check out episode 45 over at higherideas.net so you could be all caught up on this. But in any case, a quick recap. Uh, yes, I did share the first week of my two-week stay in 2014 in the Amazon jungle. And that first week I already shared was all about me. It was very much about my work, my self-work with ayahuasca, my experience, my growth, right? This first week was me being a tourist, was me being a client of the center. Um, so I had paid Maestro for that first week at the standard uh, rate that I always would pay him. And the center was at my service. I was being cared for. I was being cooked for. Um, I had nothing to do but laze around all day and focus on my issues and do my inner work while everyone around was there to support me in my work, right? That was week one, a very typical uh, ayahuasca tourist situation. But in week two, I wanted to give back. I had planned this with Maestro that I would be there to help on week two. I would be there not paying him for his services, but actually at his service, at the service of the center and Maestro's efforts uh, to help the people coming to the center in any way that I can, be it cooking, be it cleaning, be it counseling, be it, you know, just emotional support, anything I can do to help these people uh, running into ayahuasca, um, sometimes for the first time, or some of them were here for, you know, the 20th time or something. Um, but whoever they were, I would be there purely at their service, doing everything I possibly can. And before I break into the specific uh, little anecdotes about week two, I do have to go straight to the heart of week two. And that is, when I think back on that second week in 2014, um, beyond all of the interesting little stories that I can share, the most resounding, important feeling I have is the joy of helping. That was, more than anything, the lesson I walked away from that with. The empowering, invigorating feeling of really being there to help and being on the ground helping other humans. Now, really, honestly, in life, in the typical urban life, which I have lived, um, so much of our lives and efforts are devoted to ourselves, are devoted to securing money, to securing power, to securing position, which is, you know, definitely important to survival and to life. But we do tend to devote far too much energy to that struggle and devote very little to helping. 
right? And really in a balanced world, each of us would have about a 50-50 split of these two dynamically opposed efforts, right? Looking out for me versus looking out for you. But this is one of the ironic things. In a whole lifetime of, of trying to help myself and trying to advance uh, my position in society or my resources and all that stuff, I never really felt a rush of, of empowerment in any of that. Even when you would get a promotion or a raise or a bonus or something, it would be just this sort of, yeah, okay, great, I've got more now, you know, I, good for me. But there wasn't this deep welling up of, of joy and of, of empowerment and of just vigor that I have felt helping that center in week two. And in fact, I had felt this before in my life, only once before, really. And that was when I was in Occupy Toronto, uh, on that Occupy Toronto camp for one month back when that was going on. I had made a decision that on that camp, I wouldn't represent myself. I would represent the efforts that everyone was there for. And that was my motivation at that camp. And very quickly, I felt that invigoration. I felt that empowerment. I would go home at night and not sleep because my head would be spinning with all the things I need to, to get on top of tomorrow and all the people I need to talk to about all sorts of things we need to get done. My mind would just spin all night when I would go home to sleep. And the next day, when I would show up at that camp, on the way there, I would feel pretty exhausted and think, you know, maybe I should take a day off or something. But the second I would set foot on that Occupy Toronto camp, there would just be this, this field of energy that would just penetrate me instantly. And I would go all day long, sometimes forgetting to eat, barely sitting down, just constantly putting out fires and taking care of people and, and making sure things happen. And I had this inexhaustible energy. I was sort of aware of this, but I wasn't sure what it was. And I was asking myself, what is this force that I'm, I'm filled with when I'm here? I don't understand. Where am I getting all of this boundless energy when I'm not even sleeping? And why don't I feel tired on the camp when I literally physically should be? Well, in week two in Peru, I got my answer. I figured it out because, again, I was filled with that inexhaustible source of energy on the ground, helping other humans, purely to help, not a trace of selfishness in it. And that's empowering. There's a power there. This is what I'm trying to express. When you make an effort that is entirely for someone else and not at all for you, you know it. And when that happens, there's just some switch that goes off deep inside of yourself that gives you access to this joy that comes in. It's the strangest thing, but it's there. And the closest thing I could relate it to is the difference between feeling like you're owed something or feeling grateful, right? Just imagine walking into a situation feeling like everyone involved owes you something. And now think about the dynamic of your interactions and just the vibe you'll be coming in with into the situation. It's going to affect everything you do, everything you think, and it's also going to affect the way other people perceive you and your interactions with them, right? Just that mental position changes a lot about a situation. Now imagine walking into that same sort of situation, but with a perspective of gratitude, that you're grateful to be there, that you're grateful to everyone that's there. It's a complete opposite to what I just described, right? It's a completely opposite energy. 
and it completely changes the dynamic of everything that's going to happen in that situation. Everything you're going to think and feel and say and the subtleties of your, your expressions and movements and actions. And people are more likely to, to see you in a favorable light and, and, and just the entire story of whatever happens in the situation you're entering will shift purely based on that simple switch between feeling owed or feeling grateful, right? So I'm sort of talking about energetics here. I'm talking about um, feeling like you're owed something is a sucking in sort of energy. It's, it's a vampirism, right? It's give me, give me, you owe me, give me, right? But gratitude is thank you. It's not even, you're not even giving anything away. It's just thank you. It's, it's almost neutral. But at the same time, it also invites, um, it, it invites in a gentle way the support and, and gratitude of others, which feeds you. So by, by opening yourself, by first giving gratitude, you're able to receive so much more in any given situation. And this is the same way I see the difference between week one and week two. Week one was all about help me, uh, work with me, give me this, give me that, right? Bring me healing, bring me enlightenment. But week two was the complete polar opposite. It was, I'm here to help. Just tell me what I can do. I want to help you have the best situation you can have uh, this week. And that was empowering. I, I was 10 feet tall on that camp, just like I was at Occupy Toronto. I was again for the first time in a long time who I really am in that state of helping. More so than any other time in my life when I'm trying really hard to show people who I am and, and be who I am, if I'm not helping, I'm not completely who I am. So fellow human, I encourage you to try this out in your own life. Find somewhere that you can help, even in the smallest way, some way that you can help that gives you nothing at all, like giving a little change to a homeless person or, you know, going to volunteer somewhere that's really doing on-the-ground efforts in your area. Anything. There's so many ways out there to to give and to serve. And just do it a little bit. You don't have to do it all the time. Just give it a taste and see the shift that happens inside you and see if that joy comes into your life that you're not finding anywhere else where you're trying to extract pleasure and satisfaction out of life. Okay, so I've gotten that out of the way, the most important part of week two. That being said, everything else I'm going to share here is really just anecdotes. It's really just interesting things that happened here and there in the second week uh, at the jungle camp. And the first of those stories I'm going to share is actually um, something that happened in week one that I completely forgot about uh, last time. Now, among my various uh, personal concerns, uh, health concerns, and, and inner work concerns that I was wrestling with that first week, there's one thing that I forgot to mention because it didn't really factor into a lot of what I shared last time around. Uh, and that's this. Uh, for a long, long time at that point, uh, many years, at least five years, I had been carrying around a pain in my back, uh, right where a rib meets my spine, there was this sort of friction, this sort of tightness, this sort of uh, like a bone out of place, constantly rubbing against another bone the wrong way for years. And this had been uh, getting worse and worse for a long time to the point where I couldn't take a deep breath 
without a pain in my back, a stabbing little pain. Um, I couldn't laugh without going, ooh, you know, even a moment of laughter was ruined by this, this annoying little dagger in my back. I couldn't look up to the sky without a pinch in my back. I was having a lot of trouble sleeping because of this uh, pain in my back. I, I was constantly shifting as I slept, trying to relieve pressure on this thing, but it was always pinching. So I had been carrying this thing, this really sort of minor injury, but it was so constant and it was constantly getting worse uh, that it was really sort of a, a big stressing point in my life. But that being said, there was one night uh, late in the first week where something really intense happened around this issue. Uh, I was just going to sleep one night trying to relax my back, trying to release this injury as I always did but never had much progress on. So I was really just doing my best to go through all sorts of relaxation processes to try and release into sleep. And yes, my back was quite sore uh, from sleeping in a cramped mosquito netted box for that whole week. So I, I was definitely focusing on the area. And as I was laying there on my mat, waiting for sleep to come, um, all of a sudden there was just something that gripped me. Um, some kind of, how do you describe it? A feeling of, of mounting energy coming through me, a sort of feeling like, oh, something is happening. What is happening? I don't know what's happening, but oh boy, oh boy, right? And as my senses sort of waited to figure out what was going on inside of me, this mounting surge of something ended up uh, coming together on my back at this point of pain in my back and almost tried to penetrate it. It was almost like all of this uh, vibrating tickle uh, becoming smaller and smaller on the area, trying to break into it or something like that. It was just very strange. It was a very strange, almost nervous feeling. You know when you get nervous and you get the butterflies in your stomach? It was that kind of feeling on the injury on my back. And as this force just sort of gathered there, I was suddenly gripped by a muscular contraction. So my whole uh, left arm, my shoulder blade into my shoulder, into my neck, just sort of uh, contracted involuntarily in a, in a held contraction, which released after a second or two. So there was just sort of, uh, just this, I don't know, electrocution or something that, that made me involuntarily twitch this way and then release. But when this twitch happened, there was this sort of this this sort of surge of electricity almost in the area that I didn't understand at all. I didn't know what was going on. And it released me. But then just a couple seconds later, it came again like a wave. And again, my entire arm got rigid and, and, and flexed and my shoulder moved back and, and just this, this spasm gripped me. And again, uh, for a second or two, I was gripped by the surge of something and it released me again. So as I'm laying here on my bed and these waves start coming, one, two, three, four, ten, one after the other, this was hitting me like a, like a, like a breathing or like a heartbeat, right? I couldn't resist it. I was just at the mercy of something powerful happening to my body around this injury. And since this came without warning and I didn't know what was going on, I was only trying to figure it out as it was happening. And as each of these waves came, I was trying to analyze, what am I feeling? What is this electricity, this energy, this force in my back 
And as I tried to release to what was happening, it was just too intense. I couldn't release. I would sort of resist every time it hit me. But as I was working with it, I started realizing that this feeling, uh, if I had to give a name to the feeling that jolting into my back in this way, I had to admit this feeling was joy. It was like an intense electrocution of joy trying to get into this injury in my back over and over and over. And, and I just couldn't let it in. And the reason I couldn't let it in and the reason I kept resisting it every time it struck was because this joy was so powerful. It was so concentrated down to, you know, a crystallized drug almost. It was so strong, so much joy that I've never felt in my life. I was worried that if I let it in, I didn't know how to process it. This was more joy than I knew what to do with. And I just didn't want it to come in because I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if I'd go crazy from joy because it was that strong. So this pounding joy was trying to get into my injury while every time my entire shoulder and arm flexed uncontrollably. And I ended up actually rolling onto my left arm, onto my side, trying to put weight on my entire arm to stop this spasm. But all that ended up happening was every time this, this jolt would happen, my arm would flex so hard that it would lift my body off the mattress. I, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't. And it was so intense, I'm telling you, that I was moaning. I couldn't help but let out these long moans every time it happened, like, like, uh, it was really like I was being electrocuted. Really, it was. And this went on for at least half an hour, if not 45 minutes, and I wanted it to stop. And it, was, it wasn't really hurting, but it was so intense that it should have hurt. Um, and eventually, it did die down. It took a really, really long time as I let out moan after moan into the jungle. But eventually, it stopped. It passed. And when it did, I was so exhausted from whatever the hell had just happened that I pretty much passed out into sleep. And the next morning, when I woke up in this little camp in isolation, uh, I got out of my mosquito net box and started walking around the camp, stretching. And as I took a little walk around my clearing, uh, I saw something on the ground, out of place, uh, right where the trail from base camp reached my little clearing. There was something white on the ground, which is rare in the jungle. So I walked up to it and I looked down and it was the butt of a rolled tobacco joint. And as I saw this spent butt of a cigarette right there, I realized that this could only have been left by Maestro and it could only have been left the night before because it hadn't been there when I'd gone to bed that night. And then I realized that Maestro at some point in the evening, as I was falling asleep, was standing there at the edge of my clearing. And I knew by this point that shamans in the ayahuasca ceremony context and in all sorts of other healing situations uh, will use these rolled up tobacco joints to blow sacred smoke onto an affected area or to send their energy with a specific will out towards a person. Uh, these are very important in the shamanic tool set. And here's this butt of one of Maestro's joints sitting on the ground right there at the edge of my clearing. So this was significant because I realized that probably while this attack was happening, this attack of joy was happening on my injury, Maestro must have been standing there 
blowing an entire joint's worth of tobacco smoke my way from the edge of my clearing, probably doing some kind of energy work on me uh, while I was completely unaware that he was there. So he probably heard the moaning and he probably knew that he was doing some really heavy work on me, trying to get this joy to penetrate my injury. And if I would have let it through, it probably would have affected some very serious healing uh, that day, that very moment, that night. But of course, as always, when I don't understand what's going on, I resisted and the moment left. I mean, logically, it's the only reason uh, spent tobacco butt would be right there uh, at the edge of my trail in the middle of the jungle. Maestro is not a casual smoker. He doesn't walk around smoking these joints as we would. He only uses them in very serious shamanic work. So the only reason that butt would have been there would have been that he stood there doing some very serious energy work. So although he'll never admit it to me, although I never mentioned it to him, I did put those two clues together. And uh, I do assume that this moment of healing that tried to grip me that night out of the complete blue was his doing and that he was standing there the whole time. So that's just a little extra mystery from week one and my work with ayahuasca that I forgot to share last week. So now let's delve into week two, uh, which, as I said, would be all about helping Maestro at the camp. And this really began with a weekend's break back at Maestro's home in Tarapoto. Um, we brought back the two other guests who had been with us the first week. They had to go on on their travels elsewhere. And uh, I spent a couple days with Maestro's family in his home as a member of the family, really uh, made to feel at home with everyone there, having a shower and just refueling for another week in the jungle camp. And a couple of significant things did happen that weekend, which really caught me off guard. Because until that point, I had always uh, walked around with the sort of assumption that any important uh, work, any important self-work or big breakthroughs in healing would only happen at the jungle camp uh, while working with the medicine. For some reason, I had relegated any important healing to that time in that place. But here in Maestro's home, there was a huge moment that hit me uh, out of nowhere. So I was sitting at some point the first day um, on the front cement porch uh, of Maestro's home, just watching the Tarapoto traffic go by and enjoying the beautiful weather. And at some point, a taxi pulled up and Maestro stepped out of it. He had gone to the center of town to pick up some supplies for the upcoming week. And after he loaded his boxes uh, into the front doorway, I had a feeling that uh, he was unoccupied enough that I could sort of uh, have a little conversation with him, because usually he was really busy running around, and I was trying to just stay out of the way. So I called him to uh, come and sit beside me for a minute, and one of the first things I did was pulled out uh, my little notebook that I always carry around, in which I had drawn a plant. Now, if you listened to episode 45, you may remember uh, the story of being shown healing plants in an ayahuasca vision, asking the vision to show me a plant that cures XYZ. And then the vision had showed me very specific plants right down to the texture of the leaves, how shiny or waxy they are, their shape, how many leaves there are, what the stem looks like, everything. 
So I had drawn one of these plants uh, in my little notebook. So I pulled it out and showed it to Maestro. And I asked him, Maestro, uh, do you know what this plant is? And he looked at it for barely a second uh, before going, see, see, he, he recognized it, which in the first place I found surprising because I had been thinking this was an imaginary plant. I had never seen this plant anywhere. So I took the chance to uh, write what it was meant to cure beside it. And I showed this to him and I asked, is this plant used to cure this? And he looked at it and he said, see, as if, yeah, of course, we all know that plant. And this caught me so off guard. I had so not expected that. I had expected him to not know what that plant was. But here he was confirming it with barely a thought, as if, of course, of course, it's a matter of fact that this plant does cure this illness. And he went on to tell me that, in fact, it was a part of three different plants which are mixed together. And specifically, this plant I was showing him was the uh, part of the cure, part of the healing, which cleans the blood. And this just blew me away. I mean, I've been blown away so many times around ayahuasca and spirits and healing. But again, here is this blindside impact um, that a vision I had been given by plants was factually correct, now confirmed by an experienced plant healer who knows this stuff. And the impact was just so unexpected. And the significance all of a sudden of this vision I was given was so real that an emotional outpouring just happened inside of me. My eyes teared up. I started crying uh, uncontrollably, um, just laughing and crying at the same time, just absolutely in disbelief of what had just happened. And Maestro, of course, every time he hits me with one of these out-of-the-blue moments, just got up and walked away as if he knew my job here is done. And he left me there to just process what had just happened. And I ended up sitting there laughing, crying, muttering to myself, it's a miracle, uh, just tears falling all over the drawing of this plant in my hand as I understood that these plant spirits, these communications with real information of the jungle and of nature and, and the significance that there is an intelligence there trying to help us learn about healing and life, it was all real. And so I had this, this moment of release and acceptance and understanding and amazement and, and bewilderment. Uh, yeah, I was a mess for a while on, on that uh, front porch. It took maybe a good half hour to get it all out. And every time I'd stop, I'd just think about the situation again and I'd just start crying and laughing all over again. It, it really took a long time to settle down from just this completely unexpected moment of learning, of, of, of realization, which happened in the city, outside of the jungle camp. It was a, a delayed moment that had been set up by ayahuasca at the end of that week and the final punch had been delivered through the shaman later on. So besides the huge lesson for me in that moment, there was also a lesson about the delayed healing 
of psychedelics and psychedelic visions and and uh, healing delivered from the spirits and from the plant healers um the healing or the significant impact will not always happen in the ceremony in the experience itself it can happen the next day it can happen the next week it might take months but somewhere along the line a vision which will not have made sense right away um, you'll run into some kind of event in life that will trigger the memory of that vision and suddenly bring all the significance into light. So these moments of healing stretch far beyond the experience itself. Um, and, and it's just part of this extremely intricate web of life and events and coincidence that come into play around these kinds of things. Um, psychedelic healing, spiritual healing, all of that stuff. But yeah, it was a hell of an impact and definitely uh, was healing. Um, it put a lot of my worries to rest because it legitimized the rest of that vision, of which the most notable point was the message that all I needed to worry about was sleeping and, and putting my mind to rest. And that would heal me of all my issues. So that night I did sleep amazingly well and just so peaceful and calm for the first time in years my mind was at rest i was happy i was calm and in fact that night another significant moment happened um, which i shared before in the episode about psychedelics and psychicness and i'm gonna splice that uh, little story in right here i had this dream that I was in the living room of my apartment. And I opened the door to my particular bedroom to go in there for something. But when I opened that door, there was nothing but black. It was a solid wall of black, but it wasn't a wall. It was like a universe of black. It was a portal into nothing but black. And out of this black doorway, there was this wind blowing on me from in there, this howling gale, just... And in that blackness, I could hear at least three demonic, beast-like growls, all sorts of threatening animal sounds. It was the most chilling dream that just froze me. Evil in there. It was pure evil. And I woke up, of course, because it was terrifying. And in fact, it took me maybe 15 minutes to calm down before going back to sleep because it actually really shook me. And I, I, I was stuck wondering, um, what does that mean? What does that dream mean? Is there a black doorway inside of me that needs to be, um, you know, cleared out? Does that mean there's still evil back in my apartment? Uh, you know, I don't know. Eventually, I went back to sleep. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The next morning, I'm having a morning chat with Maestro, talking about all kinds of things. And then I think about the dream, and I go, oh, Maestro, I had a dream last night. And he's like, mm-hmm, just listening. And I tell him, there was a door, and when I opened it, he interrupts me. Toda negra, all black, with a smile on his face. Can you believe it? I couldn't. How the hell can he know that? 
out of all of the millions and billions of things that could have been behind that door when someone is telling you that story, how did he know that it was solid black? And he knew exactly what I was talking about. I kept describing it to him, and I said, and there was wind, and there was howling, and he was just nodding, yeah, yeah, as if he knew that door. And I just... <laughs> so many times this man has made me just be at a loss for words. At, at how the hell is this possible? So yes, that moment happened that very night and the next morning. So by the end of that weekend, people had started showing up in Maestro's home, clients for the week ahead. And there was quite a gathering. There was about seven or eight people this week, which is more people than I'd ever seen at uh, Maestro's Center. So we received them all, and everyone uh, waited for their taxis to show up, and it was time to head over back into the jungle to the camp for their ayahuasca weeks. And as we loaded into this convoy of two cars, Maestro surprised me again by announcing that he was going to be staying behind uh, to receive some guests whose plane had been delayed. So he was sending me in charge of this convoy all the way to the jungle camp. So all the way down the mountain road uh, to the riverside village where we'd all load in to the boat, which would take us 45 minutes downstream to the small village out of which Maestro operates. And I would have liked to deliver these people safely and quickly to our final destination, but as it turned out, um, there was quite a significant roadblock on the mountain road to the Riverside Village. In week one, I described the realization that this road to the Riverside Village uh, could be quite dangerous. The spray-painted white crosses, which can be spotted all along the way on the rock wall, um, showing the dates where people have died, and also, of course, having run into a giant uh, collapse of the road uh, on our first week's trip into this small village. But this time around, just a couple days after we had passed that road coming back into Tarapoto, um, there had been a massive landslide. And this one was fresh. Uh, it had happened that very day. Um, this huge landslide had come down from above, uh, covering the entire road. So if you could imagine uh, staring at a road which has been cut off now by a giant slope of huge rocks of um, thick mud um, in a slope that at its highest is 20 to 30 feet deep. And of course, uh, at the edge towards the canyon drop-off, it was down to one or two feet before dropping off into this direct drop into the Amazon River. Uh, it was a hell, it was a monster of a landslide that covered at least a football field's length, if not longer. And we had no choice. We all had to uh, unload from our taxis, carry our bags, and get to hoofing it across this fresh landslide. And it was long and slow and dangerous going. Uh, the mud, if from one step to another, 
could become many feet deep, and a lot of times people would place a foot only to sink right in, all the way down to a hip, losing their boots, having to barefoot it across. Uh, these rocks were not round rocks. These rocks were very square types of rock so there were sharp angles to them and um, some of them were loose and it was just it was just an obstacle course a long slow slog over this fresh landslide and i'm sure every one of us along the way had to come against the thought that this thing might not be stable first of all this entire thing could keep sliding taking us all over the edge into a hundred foot plus drop into a river um, or another landslide could still come down on top of this one so really the entire uh, track across this landslide which took an hour and a half or more uh, you were holding your life in your hands um, at any moment it could have all gone and on top of that as I started passing by uh, chunks of rock that I swear to you fellow human were living room sized chunks of square rock the size of a living room were in that debris um i had to come against the sobering thought that i could have been under this and i would have been dead real quick i still could die from this all unleashing and even more grim there may be people underneath me right now who were on this road there may be cars under me. I have no idea. This is this is 10 to 30 feet of mud I'm walking on. There could be dead people underneath us right now. So yes, a very sobering example of the real dangers you face uh, when heading into these very rural, very deep uh, ayahuasca camps or jungle adventures. Um, and really when you're facing up against that realization, you can only cling to faith faith that uh, you will be unscathed, that you'll be able to make it through without accidents. Uh, that's really all you can do. There is no control here. It's all just luck. And if we would have passed by there a couple hours earlier, we could have been right under that instead of walking on top of it. But eventually we made it across uh, after a long, dirty uh, trek. And eventually we loaded into taxis waiting for us at the other side, and continued our journey to the village, which eventually took us all the way to Maestro's camp. And by the time we got there, the sun was setting, and the day was pretty much done. We were very, very late uh, getting to this place, and we knew that Maestro probably wouldn't be showing up until the next day, because that was a hell of a landslide, and crossing it at night in the darkness would be ten times more difficult than crossing it in the daylight as we had. And so I just introduced everybody to the camp and invited them all to pick a room and get uh, settled into their space while we wait for the next day. And as everyone was getting to know the space and getting to know each other, there was this one man who had been sort of eyeballing me uh, the whole time, the whole trek to the camp, especially when we were crossing that landslide. He was sort of observing me from afar. And a lady I had been bonding with uh, along the way who spoke great English, she had eventually walked up to me with a business card and given it to me on his behalf, telling me, uh, Victor, this was his name, Victor wants you to have this card. And I had looked at this card, and it said chiropractor and acupuncturist. Um, and although it was a strange time to give me this business card, I just sort of figured, okay, well, I'll chat with him about his business when we get to the camp. 
So when we were at the camp all getting to know each other, he just walked up to me out of the blue. And this man only spoke Spanish. So he had a cigarette in his mouth, walks right up to me. And in Spanish, he just asks, where does it hurt? And I didn't know what he meant. He just sort of walked up and asked me this. I thought, what, what do you mean? Where does it hurt? And before I could answer him, he put a finger right in the center of my chest. And then he was looking at me like he was sort of seeing through me or something. He was looking at me like he was really analyzing something. And then he started walking around my left side, tracing his finger in a line uh, over my body. So going over my left arm, around my left shoulder. And then he ended up behind me, tracing this line all the way to my back. And then he pressed his finger exactly in the pinpoint position of this back injury I was talking about. And it just sort of made me jump and go, ow! But he had spotted it. He had seen it just from observing me, just from whatever mathematics he had just pulled. I was amazed that he had this knowledge of the human body to be able to find this pain just by looking at me. And before I could say anything, he started just grabbing my arms and shoulders and just popping and twisting me in all sorts of different positions, just making all sorts of things crack, I guess trying to help me out with this back problem. And whatever he did, uh, did provide significant release uh, for the rest of that week. Although it wasn't completely gone, um, definitely the aggravation I had felt from the week before, from sleeping in cramped positions, uh, he cleared it right up. So I was really impressed. This man was definitely a really accomplished chiropractor, acupuncturist, healer of sorts. And I came to find out, as I got to know these people, that most of these guests this week around were all very experienced healers in their own right. So there was Sandra, this woman I bonded with, who was an ayahuasca shaman, an energy healer, a psychedelic healer. There was Victor, this man who was a chiropractor and an acupuncturist, among other things. And, and there was a Reiki specialist. There was all sorts of different healers, senior healers, showing up this week at this camp where the week before I had made a fateful decision to study healing and become a healer myself. So once again, here's destiny providing in this week where I'm volunteering and here to help. Here I am surrounded by a rainbow of teachers. So in my heart, I call this second week of year two uh, Hogwarts for healers. I felt like I was uh, in this amazing school. Here was a bunch of healers that not only had specific specialties beyond psychedelics, you know, acupuncture and chiropractic and things like this, but all of them coming to work very deeply with ayahuasca for their own improvement as healers. This second week really opened my eyes to the depth of involvement a healer can have with psychedelics and how how these two practices can really resonate with each other. So I did have many conversations with these people over that week as I brought them food in their isolation camps, as I counseled them with any issues they were having. Um, I learned many, many things from all of these different people, most of all from Sandra, who was just this amazing, amazing singer in the ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, she works with Icaros throughout the entire ceremony, non-stop. She just sings for hours while the ayahuasca experience is going on. Um, and, and it was just beautiful. 
and she taught me many songs and, and taught me the power of these sacred songs in the ritual setting. Now, as it turned out, a couple hours into that evening, Maestro appeared on camp. Uh, I don't know how he got over that landslide. I don't know how he got to camp, but he just was there. Uh, we were all surprised to see him. We hadn't expected him to show up. And he told me, uh, hey, we're having an ayahuasca ritual tonight, so please get the space ready. So I went running all over the camp looking for buckets and blankets and pillows and mattresses for everybody, um, just preparing the maloca, the ceremonial space, for all of these new guests plus maestro. And I did set up the space uh, really fast, and I was prepared to go to bed. Um, I had done my work for the evening. I knew that now it was in maestro's hands, and these people were about to have an amazing ayahuasca ceremony. But I was surprised once again when Sandra told me, you're not going anywhere. Maestro says, you're joining us tonight in our ceremony. And I was really surprised by this and pleased. I really hadn't expected uh, to be involved in this second week's ayahuasca ceremonies. I wasn't expecting to drink ayahuasca again while I was there. But here I was invited um, into this first night ceremony by Maestro. It was really an honor, and I was really grateful for sort of, uh, you know, the free perk. And I was also glad that I'd get to work on myself again, because that first week, I hadn't really felt a lot of progress on my self-healing. So we all gathered in the Maloka, me happier than anybody to be there, um, and we all drank our ayahuasca and set into the ritual. And as I just described Sandra throughout the ritual... Um, just sang and sang and sang and what she can do with her voice the low notes she can dip into and the strange sounds that were coming out of her were amazing and beautiful but not only that uh, she showed me the power of her songs there was one song in particular that she was singing when we were all well into the effects of the brew um, where i felt a sort of feeling of a vine a plant vine crawling its way towards me from her side of the space. And when it got to me, it sort of started aiming at my heart and trying to to wiggle into my heart around all of my defenses and shells. Uh, I was trying to not let it in, but it was just persistent and digging and digging towards my core. And I've described this moment before um, in a past episode, but it eventually broke through. And I had been struggling against it for a few minutes um, in such a way that I had ended up on all fours on my mat, facing the floor. And I felt that if this thing breaks through, something is going to fly out of me that I can't control. And that's why I was trying to resist, but I couldn't. Her songs were just too powerful. And this little vine ended up touching the core of me. And when that happened, something just fell out of me, just a surge of, of energy. I felt fall out of my chest onto the floor and spread all through the room. And this stuff that was coming out of me was just the most benevolent love and, and will for healing to everyone in the space. Just pulses and pulses of everybody heal, everybody I love everybody. Just this love, this, 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 this universal love was coming through me. It was amazing. And I don't want to babble on too much about it because it gets really deep and personal, but it was powerful. And in fact, every time I felt this pulse uh, come out of me and spread through the room, 
everyone in the room reacted. You would hear people gasp. You would hear people sigh. You would hear people cry um, over and over as this blast was blasting out of me. And it became so powerful that I just collapsed face down on my mat as it continued to come through me. And some things happened in this moment that I'm not even going to describe. But it, 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 I was channeling some kind of healing force into that room. And I didn't understand what was happening. I had completely surrendered to the moment. And I remember Maestro and Sandra gathering around me also being hit by these impulses of healing and love. And I remember Sandra sobbing, uh, crying about what's happening. And they were sort of speaking to each other in hushed voices about me, around me. And all I remember hearing was Maestro saying collaboración to her, as if saying, no, we did this together. They had somehow released something in me that was washing all through the space in this sacred ayahuasca moment. Yeah, it was a big night. Um, you know, this led into all sorts of other visions um, and, and deep release work. And I could say that this was the first ayahuasca ceremony I've participated in that I feel was properly calm for me. As intense as it was, uh, this thing that I'm describing that happened and came through me, it was the first time I drank ayahuasca and was at peace and was calm with the forces happening in the space. And I wasn't scared of anything. And I was just happy and comfortable. And a lot of that had to do with the way I came into this ceremony as, as it was a bonus. I wasn't pressuring myself to heal. I wasn't pressuring the forces to help me. I was there to help everyone. And what happened was some force came through me to help everyone. I had channeled a more powerful version of my will, some healing force that was also there for the other people in the space decided to come through me that night. Um, and I don't understand it. I don't understand what it was. I don't understand the science of it. I just know that it happened. And you could hear everyone in the space reacting to these blasts I was sending out of my heart. It was amazing. Um, it was amazing. And started everybody's week off on a good foot. This was just such a happy week. You could tell that everyone was happy to be there. Nobody was there struggling with anything too serious. Everyone was just growing and glowing on this camp. And I went through that week um, serving. Uh, serving people food, preparing their food, and bringing it to them in isolation. Uh, if anybody had some philosophical... Uh, discussions they wanted to have, they would have it with me. Uh, Maestro took the week off, basically. He gave me the experience of running the camp. And I guess, in a way, uh, he was showing me what he does, uh, what he's responsible for. So unless there was a serious problem, at which point I'd go get Maestro, um, for all the everyday stuff or light discussion, I was there to help. And as I described at the beginning of this episode, this was just so good for the soul. Um, I was just so pleased to be there for people to have deep philosophical conversations about every individual's healing or wonderings about life and the universe and spirits, the same kind of stuff I do on this podcast, but in, in a way that I'm on the ground 
facing the person I'm helping and able to have that dynamic, that immediate feedback of, hey, thanks for helping me out. Hey, no problem. I'm glad to help you out. I hope it gets better for you and we'll talk later. It was just this really involved human connection that, that, that was more healing for me than anything that happened the week before. I just loved being on that camp that week. I just loved helping and I was happy. I was on top of the world. I would have stayed forever if I could have. And really the rest of that week went without incident. It was mostly about this, about uh, just doing the daily grind work, helping people out, and in between cooking meals or cleaning, whenever there was uh, you know, an hour or two free, I'd get to just sit there and listen to the jungle or just go take a dip in the river. Um, it was amazing. It's great. It's a great lifestyle. That being said, there were a couple of points of drama that happened here and there. For instance, chickens. There were some chickens on this camp that I was also responsible for. And let me tell you something, chickens are assholes. <laughs> um, there were all sorts of places they weren't supposed to be, and they would just always find a way to get there. For instance, um, in the kitchen area, there was this sort of storage level in the roof above, uh, this sort of uh, platform where things were stored. And the chickens weren't supposed to get up there. And once in a while, somehow or another, a chicken would end up up there. And the way I'd find out there was a chicken up there is an egg would fall on the ground right beside me and break. And then a chicken would fly away from up there, just, just fly off. And I'd think, you asshole, how did you get up there? And why did you just drop an egg on me? Um, so I'd have to clean it up and, and try to keep the chickens from getting up there again. This happens three times. And I swear it was like that chicken was doing it on purpose, waiting for me to show up, to drop an egg right beside me, and then fly off almost laughing. Ha <laughs> ha, got you again. And at night, part of my responsibilities were to chase all of the chickens down out of the forest, out of the cocoa tree fields, um, and make sure they go home to roost in their little sort of wooden teepee. And most of them, when the sun started going down, would gather around this sort of wooden teepee in preparation for going in. And once they'd all go in, I had to put a plank over the entrance. But before I could put the plank there, I had to wrangle all the chickens into this tiny little building thing. And how do you wrangle chickens? I don't know. I would just end up uh, trying to chase them into there, trying to walk them slowly into their little home. But they'd just stand next to the door looking at me. And when I'd get closer to try and spook them in, they'd run around me and go back into the forest. So I spent quite a lot of time chasing chickens and, and just realizing the chickens really are kind of assholes. And they almost seem to do it on purpose. And I had all sorts of other run-ins with nature that week. Um, one of the things that happened was I got swarmed by a beehive for the first time in my life. I had never had a single bee sting um, until this moment. And what had happened was there was a mat, a mattress, in one of the uh, isolation camps that had been covered in termites. And I had to go beat the termites off of this mattress and then pick it up on my shoulder and walk all the way back to base camp uh, to set it to dry in the sun on the upper deck. So I came into camp with this thing on my shoulder and walked all the way to the ends of the upper deck to a section that was exposed to sunlight and then I dropped this mattress onto the planks. And it took less than a second. I mean, the second this mattress hit the plank, all I remember feeling was 
there is an ember burning my skin. It felt like when a fire kicks out one of those little sparks and it lands on your skin. That's what I felt on my stomach, which was uh, exposed. My shirt was, uh, my zip up shirt was open. And I look down to my stomach and I see a bee. So I think, oh shit, I know what's happening here as I feel another sting and another sting. So I start running out of there, throwing my shirt off and just like trying to get out of the situation with this adrenaline rush as I'm feeling stings. And I had, you know, five to 10 stings on me by the time I got away from there. And instead of panicking or anything, I was actually laughing because it struck so fast. I barely had a second to realize what was happening. And I booked it real fast out of there. Um, and really the stings weren't that bad. I had spent a whole life running from bees and wasps and imagining how much it must hurt to be stung by a bee. And here I am getting swarmed by a beehive of jungle bees and just sort of laughing off how pathetic uh, the, the feeling was. It was just little burns. That's all. It stopped hurting immediately. So this was another fear in my life that just evaporated after this moment, realizing how my fear had been so much bigger than the reality of being swarmed even by a hive of bees. Uh, it could have been a lot worse if I had been underneath the planks, because that's where their nest was, it turns out. There was this little clump bee nest um, right under the planks, and when I had dropped the mattress, some kind of winds, I guess, had disturbed them, and some of them had come up over the deck to find me. If I had been under the deck, uh, maybe I'd be singing a different tune. But for what it was, um, it really taught me that uh, there really wasn't that much to fear about being stung. Now, later that week, I had another run-in with creatures of nature when uh, Maestro took me into the deep jungle, way off trail, uh, really carving into the jungle with your body, pushing through leaves and sticks and plants, because I had been asking him to take me to the plant that I had seen in a vision that I described earlier in this episode. I just, I still wanted to see this plant to believe that it was real. And I mean, this plant that I had seen in this vision had taken on almost a sacred context in my mind because it was tied into such a really important moment of realizing spirit and miracles, right? So I wanted to see this plant. I wanted to kiss this plant. I wanted to touch it and smell it and taste it. Um, and I had been asking Maestro all week to take me into the jungle and show me where this plant was um, whenever he had a moment. So finally, in the later part of this week, we set off into the jungle to find this plant for me. And I was expecting us to take some trail that had been carved before to get there. But as I described a second ago, no, this was the jungle. He was taking me into the wild, uh, untouched jungle really, really deep this time uh, where he would go to find medicines. And he seemed to know where he was going and he had an idea where this plant would be. And I want to describe here something so strange about this entire trek into the real deep jungle. Um, there was just a feeling of power. There was a feeling of almost being disoriented by, by radiant power everywhere. This seems to be, there seemed to be some sort of almost dreamlike magic to this deep 
wild jungle that I hadn't felt in the trails carving through it. Um, going into it, having contact with it, being uh, hip deep in it and surrounded by it on all sides, knowing that at any moment uh, an insect or a snake could be crawling on you, um, there was just this strange otherworldly feeling to the entire situation. And what I'm, what I'm trying to describe here is it felt like I was in another reality, in this deep, deep jungle. There was just an essence there that I've never felt anywhere else. And there was one point where I had split off for Maestro. He had gone to my right, and he had told me to go towards the left to try and find this plant. Uh, and I was just sort of looking to the ground, trying to carefully walk around and not put my foot on anything dangerous. And at one point, I looked up just in time to avoid walking into a giant spider web, just six feet wide and six feet high, stretched right in front of me. I was just about to walk into it, and the spider was sitting right in front of my face, right in the middle of the web, and it was huge. But there was no risk there, as I later found out, because this was a kind of spider that you could even pick up with your hands, uh, which will very rarely bite. It's a very docile spider. But still, it would have been quite a shock to walk into this giant web. And it was maybe ten steps after this that I looked down to the ground to place a step and saw on the left side of my zip-up shirt a tarantula the size of my hands, a big brown hairy tarantula slowly crawling towards my shoulder and I smacked it off of myself downward just smacking it down into the grass uh, as a reflex immediately only to see it crawling back its thread towards my chest again so I had to give it a second harder smack to send it into the jungle I don't know what kind of tarantula that was I don't know if I was in any danger but it was definitely uh, one of those creepy moments of holy crap that was a huge spider and it was crawling on me but this is what happens when you go waist deep into the jungle this is the kind of risk i guess i had to be accepting trying to find this plant this is how seriously i wanted to see this plant and as i looked around on leaves and branches here and there i kept spotting exotic and strange creatures i had never seen i remember seeing this huge mosquito sitting on a leaf um, its butt was cobalt blue this bright blue butt and its eyes its big bulbous eyes were just blood red and when i saw that thing i thought holy crap do not bite me you stay on that leaf giant beast mosquito from some kind of dream i mean everything in this deeper jungle had this this otherworldly quality i really I don't know if it's the life force of being that deep in the forest. I don't know if there's some kind of mystic energy hanging around in these untouched areas of, of the rainforest, but definitely it was another world. It was like Avatar. It was, it was that weird. But anyway, long story short, uh, we did not end up finding that plant, and I did end up uh, making it out of that jungle trip without any bites or any scrapes or anything serious except close calls. I did see a coral snake, which is one of the world's most deadly snakes, if it bites you. It's a very docile, shy snake, but if you step on it and it bites you, uh, you're kind of screwed. So there are dangers there. You have to keep your wits about you in the jungle. But at the same time, it's a paradise. So it's almost a small price to pay. The way I feel about the jungle now is if I die in the jungle, I just hope it's a painless and quick death. But if the jungle kills me, so be it. 
I can think of no more beautiful a place, no more beautiful a killer than the jungle, than the rainforest. It's just a paradise on earth, despite the risks, despite the hardships, despite the illnesses and injuries and nightmares that can happen there. It's still, at the same time, is an absolute paradise. And if I could snap my fingers and give myself any life that I can imagine... It would be to live in the jungle until the end of my days, working with ayahuasca, working with spirits and healing people. Um, that is the ideal life for me. There is nothing in the city that can touch the peace and the life force and the, and, and the beauty and just the, the energy of the jungle. I was really sad to leave at the end of that week when I headed back to Toronto. Um, and as I shared in a past episode, I'm heading back in January uh, 2016. So in a few weeks now, I'll be there again, this time for months. And I'm so happy. I'm so looking forward to this. Um, and you know, I realized something. Um, as I'm preparing for this trip, uh, when I go to sleep at night, I often think ahead to being there. And what fills me is joy, that joy of, yes, helping, but also being in this jungle again, uh, just breast to breast with nature, um, risks and all. And it made me realize something pretty wild in the last couple of weeks, and that's this. I am in love with the jungle. I have fallen head over heels in love. And I can say this because... I have been in relationships in the last two and a half years since first meeting the jungle and ayahuasca and the spirits and everything. I've tried to be in relationships and they never work out. And the reason these relationships didn't work out is because my heart is not even in this country, in Canada. My heart is in Peru, in the jungle. And in these failed relationships, one of them complains you're in love with Maestro, right? So this was kind of right, but also kind of wrong, because I am not in love with Maestro. But what's true about that was the sentiment. You're in love with that place. I had to admit that only recently, and I realized it. Oh my God, I am in love with the jungle, enough to sacrifice human relationships here in the city enough that they don't work out for me because I'm constantly thinking and talking about getting back there again um, so yeah that's it that's um, a really deep part of me I have to admit that I am in love with a jungle and as I've described in this episode going over there I'm going to be traveling that road with very frequent landslides and a high risk of death I will be walking in this jungle that has risks of disease and injury just left and right. And you know what? As I said, I couldn't pick a better way to die. I couldn't pick a better place to die. To be helping fellow humans on this very important path. To be living and working with this very important piece of life on Earth that is the Amazon jungle. I'd rather die there than be hit by a bus in the city. So that's me. That's where things are. 
And of course, this is going to affect the podcast because I'm going to be, you know, far from communication uh, and technology in the jungle. But I have prepared myself a sort of mobile podcasting kit to at least produce episodes while in the jungle, if I want to, if I have the time and the inspiration. And anytime I get back to the city and have access to the internet, I'll be able to do podcast drops. I'll be able to uh, upload whatever I've created. So I will definitely keep working on this podcast as much as I can while I'm over there for whatever amount of months I'm there. This podcast is not going to stop. It's just going to become something else for a while. For me, this podcast represents trying to help over the internet, right? This the same joy of helping is what I put into every one of these episodes, and the same wish to help the listener is what fuels all of Higher Ideas. Part of me feels guilty that I won't be sitting at a computer in the city working night and day on this podcast trying to churn out as much content as I possibly can, but I have to be honest here, fellow human, nothing compares to being able to help a person that's right there in front of me. That just feels so much more powerful. Um, there's just something missing by broadcasting over the internet, I'm not feeling the feedback. I keep asking listeners to speak to me. I keep inviting you guys to interact. But I'll be honest, I'm not seeing a lot of that. I'm barely seeing thumbs up, you know? I'm barely seeing discussion. I I'm getting very few active, involved listeners giving me feedback and helping me figure out how this thing is doing and is this helping anyone? This podcast is very much sending a bottle into the ocean, and I have no idea who's reading it. I don't know who most of you are. I have no idea. And the worst part of that is I don't know if I'm helping. I can't see if I'm affecting this world through this podcast. So between this and going to the jungle again and being able to see the effect I have on even one person on this camp by having a, an important conversation with them or helping them through a difficult ayahuasca moment, there's just no competition. I just have to go over there. And this podcast is going to have to fit into that somehow. I'll, I'll definitely be doing my best to keep it going. And I mean, I'm sure I'll have a ton of stories to tell about just what's happening there on top of all the content I still have to discuss on this podcast. So anyway, thank you, you silent listeners, you silent majority of listeners out there. Thank you anyway for listening to this podcast and please support it in any way you can by sharing these episodes. Anything you find of value or interesting, share it on Facebook or leave me a thumbs up or come over to my Facebook account and leave a comment, say something, do something, get in touch. Let me know that you exist and that I'm having some kind of effect on you because in silence, it's only a matter of faith. I only have to guess that this is helping somebody somewhere. So in any case, fellow human, I'll wrap this one up here. And as always, if you want to hear more about ayahuasca and spirits and healing and miracles and in the jungle, definitely check out my book, Ayahuasca, Terror and Miracles in the Peruvian Amazon. You can find it at terrorandmiracles.com. Any proceeds from those sales go straight back into the podcast and supporting me as a human being so you could keep hearing more of this interesting content. And as always, you can check out other episodes over at higherideas.net as well as find all the Facebook share buttons to support this podcast by spreading the word. 
And way down at the bottom of higherideas.net, you'll find a Facebook link to my Facebook page where I invite you to join me as a friend. Anything you'd like to discuss or ask or suggest, I'm right there. And that'll be all for today, fellow human. So until next time, keep thinking.